Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10. We've been teaching for what seems to me to be a long, long time. I know that we've been interrupted a little bit with the schedule and some uh, couple of weeks that I was out of town too, but uh, we've been teaching for a number of weeks on the subject uh, that we've been titled Biblical Prosperity. I want to conclude that series tonight and um, uh, the Lord's, well, over the last several days when I've been um, seeking the mind of the Lord on what to teach and just how to, how to close this series up, uh, I, I really didn't know which way to go. I knew that uh, uh, I had a sense in my heart that there was going to be something different about the, the service or the way that the Lord wanted the service to go. But this morning I woke up with a thought. I won't even call it a message, just a thought. But um, um, in, in thinking about it and meditating on it um, uh, throughout the day, this may be the most important thing that I've taught in this series. Now, we started way back when, whenever it was that we uh, first started teaching on this subject in this series. We started with Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22. It was the, the text scripture, the foundation scripture that we began with. And it says very simply this, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. You know, there's... Um, uh, it, it's certainly the way that the Lord uses me and, and um, uh, deals with me about uh, ministering. But I, I think that it goes even beyond me or this church or um, maybe even a movement in the, the body of Christ. And that is um, uh, what some people would call word of faith churches or word of faith preachers or whatever you want to call us. I, I don't really like that name too much, but nevertheless, it's the one people use. We seem to teach in, uh, according to subjects. Now, I got it from Brother Hagin because uh, Brother Hagin was the first one that I ever heard say to study the Bible according to subjects and you'll get more out of it. And when I started doing that, man, the Word started coming alive to me because up until that point in time, the only thing I'd ever done, I grew up in a Baptist church. Thank God for the Baptist. Um, but the instruction or foundation I had from them was basically devotions you know, little short stretches of scripture or just starting to read the Bible, you know, a book at a time or a chapter at a time or whatever. And whereas there's a, a great benefit to both of those, a lot of times you're left without being able to connect different things that the Holy Ghost inspired writers of the Bible to, to say about a certain subject or a topic. And so you're left with limited information at best. So I'm a big, a big advocate of studying the Bible according to subject. I like teaching according to subjects. It's, uh, uh, it's gotten a little bit easier for me as I've gone, but going through the Bible verse by verse it was extremely difficult for me when I first began. And I only started that five or six years ago, I guess, and haven't done a lot of it, but done a little bit. But um, uh, there's a problem with the topic or, or going according to subjects, and that is we have a tendency to pull things out of their setting and talk about just the subject that we're on. Now, what I mean by that is so many times people look at prosperity, and it's not just true where prosperity is concerned. It's true where healing is concerned. It's true where forgiveness of sin is concerned. Any other subjects you want to, want to name. It's, it seems to be that um, word of faith preachers or word of faith churches have boiled down the blessings of God to forgiveness of sins, healing, and prosperity. And there's a whole lot more to God than that. Now, people are at different places. I understand that. 
Uh, I'm not at the place I was when I first heard about God's desire to bless people financially or what Jesus did on the cross for us and uh, as far as provision is concerned. And, and I don't want to say anything that makes somebody feel condemned. But a lot of times, m- maybe most of the time, people start off because they're in the hole and they need help. I know I was. I was in a financial hole. Looking back at it, it wasn't as deep as I thought it was. But at the time, I thought it was uh, the bottomless pit. And I needed, God, I needed God's help. And I approached it from a very selfish standpoint. Just got to be honest with you. I wasn't interested in winning the lost. Heard about that in the Baptist church. Wasn't any good at witnessing, so I didn't care. I wasn't trying to, to prosper for a, for a greater purpose than just paying my bills and getting out of debt. I needed help for me. And God honored that. God wasn't mad at me. He didn't withhold his blessings because of it. He knew that I would grow. He knew that I was just a baby Christian in a lot of areas. And, uh, and he helped me. And he got me out of debt. He got me back on solid ground. He got me back to, to even and, and so forth. But God didn't expect me, nor does he expect you or any of us, to maintain that same position or that same attitude that we had when we started. Some people come to, to church because they need healing. They've heard something from the doctor and they need healing. And boy, they need it fast because the doctor's given them a bad report. Well, God will help you. God will rescue you. God will de- deliver you. I don't mean to, to, for my comments uh, that I'm making now to, to uh, dissuade anybody from believing God for a miracle in any area whatsoever because God's the God of miracles. But God doesn't want us to say like that. Consequently, a lot of times people look at things, topics like healing or prosperity or whatever the case might be. They look at them as events rather than lifestyle. And the Bible, you see people doing this with their faith all the time. The Bible says the just shall live, the, live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall use faith from time to time. But apparently what a lot of people do because they're in the hole, because they're in trouble, is they want to use their faith. They want a formula. They want something that they can uh, grab a hold of or hang their hat on that says do this and God will do that. And God honors that in a lot of ways because he knows where we're coming from. But that's not what biblical prosperity is supposed to be limited to. God wants to be your partner. A life partner. I hate to use that term because of the way it's used nowadays. But that's the reality of it. God coined the term, or God uh, came up with the idea before anybody started using it for other lifestyle choices. And that is this. God wants to be your partner in life. Look with me to Genesis chapter 12. God made himself a partner with Abraham. Verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now I'm going to read to you from the next chapter, chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot was with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in silver and cattle and in gold. Now a lot of times we look at chapter 12 where God says I will bless thee. And and it's true. I don't mean to minimize the truth or take away the reality of, the, of the, the, the scripture itself. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. So when God said to Abram, follow me, go where I tell you to go and I will bless you, he's promising to make him rich. Now I don't know if Abraham knew that at the time when he heard it. 
if, if God literally said it the way that the Bible relates it, if he said, follow me and I'll bless you, did Abram know that that meant I'll make you rich? I don't know. But the end result is, in a very short period of time, from chapter 12 to chapter 13, that Abram became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. So a lot of times, it seems to me that we look at what God said to Abram, and we think that God said, he's sitting in heaven, and God comes up with the idea, you know, I, I haven't had anybody since I created Adam. Then things started going downhill from there. Then Noah made a covenant with him. He built the ark, preserved a remnant of mankind that I can do something with or will try to do something with. But my goodness, first thing he did after he got on solid ground was get drunk and have sex with his daughters. It's going downhill again. And so it's almost like God sitting in heaven saying, you know, I've just got an itch to make somebody wealthy. So he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, do what I tell you to do. And man, I'm going to pour blessings and riches and wealth on you like you've never seen. Well, that's not what happened. God came to Abraham and said, if you'll enter into a partnership with me, it'll be better for you than you can imagine. But the reality was it was a partnership. God wants to be your partner. He didn't just want to be your financier. He didn't just want to be the, the, your, your sugar daddy, Daddy Warbucks, that you go to when you're in financial trouble. He wants to be your partner. Now, for that reason, we have, um, uh, or, or concerning that subject, subject of prosperity, we've read from chapter 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy numerous times during this series where God talks to Israel through Moses and he's telling them what the blessings are that they're going to find in the promised land and so forth and all of those things are true all those things are wonderful but tonight I want you to turn with me to chapter 6 because we're going to read it in context we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and that's not even the beginning of it but that's as far back as I'm going to go he really starts in chapter 4 Moses starts in chapter 4 through the end, of the, cha- uh, the, the end of the book, basically, telling them what they're going to find in the promised land, what they're supposed to do from this point forward, because he's going off the scene. He's no longer going to be the, the leader of the children of Israel. He's uh, going to be replaced by Joshua and so forth. So at least 25 chapters of uh, Deuteronomy or Moses' farewell address. So we'll start in chapter 6. And notice what he says, and I I want you to, there are going to be things that you see that are going to jump out at you, I'm sure, and that's good. I want it to be that way. But I want you to take it from a big picture standpoint. Look at it from an overall view. What is God trying to get across to Israel through Moses? Moses has walked with God like nobody else has on the face of the earth up to that time. He's talked with God face to face. He's seen the glory of God. The glory of God has been so strong on him that his face shined and the people ran away from him because they were afraid. He's been in the mountain that burned with fire and thunder and lightning shook it and, and all kinds of things were going on so much so that the people thought there's nobody that could survive that. He's had God stand for him against the people when the people wanted to kill him to such a degree that the ground opened up and swallowed up their enemies. He's seen plagues happen because people withstood him. Talking about Moses. There's nobody that's been with God like this guy was. At least not up to that point in time. And notice what Moses is instructing the people. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that flows with milk and honey. Folks, let me interject something here. God's plan is not just to bail you out of your financial mess. God's plan is for you to increase, and then your children increase more, and your, their children increase more and more and more and more. Because we teach them to know God and to walk in his statutes. God's plan is for generations to be blessed, not just for you to be able to pay your rent. Nothing wrong with needing to pay your rent. If you need to believe God for the money to get that rent paid, do it. God will help you. But that's not all he wants to do for you. That's not all he wants to do in, in, in the sense of being involved with you. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now let me stop here and tell you something. There'd be no way for you to know this unless you've got Jewish friends or, or uh, Orthodox Jewish friends or whatever. But you need to understand something. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 is the foundation scripture for Judaism. You ask an Orthodox Jew, an observant Jew, what's the most important scripture in the Bible? He'll tell you this one. Let me read it to you again and tell you why it's so important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now this translates different ways in, in, or is uh, uh, translated different ways in, in other translations and so forth. The best meaning of it is this. The Lord our God is the only God. And as such, this is the foundation for Judaism. This is what the Jews understood and still understand that nobody else has ever seemed to get a hold of. There is only one God. No matter what Muslims say, we don't worship the same one. No matter what anybody else says, there's only one God, and that's the God of the Christian. He was the God of the Jews. Jesus fulfilled the law, and now he's the God of the church. And this is what the Jews understood. This is what the Jews, what separated the Jews from every other nation on the face of the earth, then and now. They know their God is the only God. So when in the pagan countries, pagan lands that they would enter into and the, uh, the, the promised land that was uh, involved in paganism, worshiping all kinds of gods, they cared not one whit about these other gods because they knew that their God was the only God. This is the foundation of Judaism. If there's one thing that separates the Jews from the church, this is it. They know their God is the only God. I'll explain more as we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Please notice the last word, might. God is saying, Moses is saying through the, Holy, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Jews. He's saying this, because our God is the only God, here's what you're responsible for. To love him with all your heart, that represents your spirit. To love him with all your soul, that represents your mind and your understanding. And with all your might. In other words, 
Love him with your life. Now, this is the thing that's always puzzled me. Because as the church, our part of the church anyway, takes prosperity as a subject. Takes God's blessing for financial provision and so forth as a subject. The Jews take it as a lifestyle. The Jews understand that God's promise, irrespective of whether they've been good or bad, irrespective of what confession they make, they don't understand faith and confession like we do. They have no clue whatsoever. Yet it works for them better than it seems to work for the modern day church. Because of this, they believe that God's on their side and that everything they do with their life will be blessed. Because of him and not because of us. And here's where we mess up. We think it's a matter of how much we believe or how strong our faith is or how diligent we are in reading the Bible or praying or meditating the word or whatever. We're all trying to make God work for us through works. They may be spiritual works, but it still works. Judaism said there's only one God. He's on our side, so everything we do works. We have success no matter what we do because God's on our side. Now, you know as well as I do, there's a, there's a lot of uh, Jews that aren't pleasing to God just like there are a lot of other people that aren't pleasing to God. There's nothing about the Jews that, that make them God's favorite because of something they've done or whatever. As a matter of fact, it'll say later on, God picked them not because they were great in number or because they were strong. God picked them because God picked them. Well, guess what? In the same way God picked you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee, uh, uh, I should say this, many other translations say with all your strength, but it's still the same concept. He's talking about what you do with your life. He's not talking about worship the Lord by lifting your hands and offering sacrifice of praise once a day. See, we do that thinking it's a, it's a good work and God will be pleased with it. Again, we're talking lifestyle. We're talking about the strength or the might or the action of your life. And these words, verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shall talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Now, if there's anything the Jews have messed up on, it's this. Where they wear those little boxes, those phylactery things tied around their heads, thinking that they're observing what the Bible says to do. And God blesses them anyway. I don't know if he thinks it's funny and, you know, bless their hearts. We've got to do something to help these stupid people. I, I don't know. You ever seen people wearing those things? Observant Jews wearing those things? I wanted to, I, it was everything, I was in New York. And it was everything I could do not to say, what are you doing? Do you not know that's not what it means? And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swore unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. Now he's going to start, start talking about blessings. But I want you to notice something even more than the blessings that he talks about. 
First thing he makes mention of in, 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 concerning the blessings is he'll give you cities that you didn't have to build. God is in the business of providing things for you that you didn't work for. I want you to see that. That's great news. But there's something else that you need to see. And that is Moses is talking for God and saying it's already a done deal. And we need to incorporate that in our understanding. If God said it in the word, it's a done deal. God doesn't say, now, you know, we're going uh, to try our best to defeat the enemies. Moses' understanding of God is he said it, it shall be. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which you didn't fill up, and wells digged which you dig, didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant. When thou shalt have eaten and art full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. In other words, Moses is saying, all this stuff's going to happen. You don't have to worry about it happening. You don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. God said he'd give you the land. He's going to give you cities. He's going to give you houses. There'll be places where you conquer that you'll be able to walk in and take over somebody's house. It'll be full of all good stuff that you didn't have to accumulate. You'll take over their, their vineyards and their olive groves and, and uh, their crops and stuff. It'll be ready for you. It'll be waiting for you. You'll just walk in and take possession of it. That's great. But the important thing is don't forget God. See, we think from the other end. We think, well, my goodness, we need prosperity. We need finances. We need God to help us out of the mess that we took years to get in. You know, I've been working on getting myself in debt for 10 years, and I need God to do it by get me out by Friday. So, Lord, I need money, 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 money. Moses is coming from a totally different angle, folks, and this is a real critical element to biblical prosperity. God doesn't want to just be your financier. He doesn't want to just be your supplier. He wants to be your partner. So when he brings you out of your situation, maybe not as quickly as you think it's going to be or should be, maybe not in the way that you've got it imagined that it will work, but when he brings you out of your situation, make sure that the number one thing in your mind Number one thing as far as your purpose is concerned is your relationship or your partnership with God. That's the message. He goes further. Verse 13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. Lest, his ang lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against you and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Now I'll tell you what that is in just a second. But please notice that he's talking about this. He's saying the only reason that you are blessed is because of your partnership with God. Don't play with that partnership. Don't think you can neglect it. Don't think you can incorporate other gods in your life. He's not saying... Don't be careful that you don't become a Baal worshiper instead of a worshiper of God. He's saying don't incorporate Baal worship into what you think your worship is. 
In other words, the Lord is one God. He is the one and only. He's talking lifestyle. Then he says, don't tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Now, this is an important thing that you need to understand, and I I don't want to take the time to turn back to it. It's it's Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. And it's this. It's the story of when the children of Israel are are on the way to the promised land. Their forefathers, or the previous generation, I should say, is on the way to the promised land, and they get to a place where there's no water. And when they get to the place where they're miles and miles and miles away from the water, any water source whatsoever, there's there's no visible signs of provision whatsoever they start murmuring against Moses and talking about how bad a leader Moses is because you left us brought us into the desert and there's no water in the desert and what are we going to do we're going to die and our animals are going to die we would have been better off standing in Egypt and all this kind of stuff Moses goes to the Lord and he says what am I going to do they're ready to kill me and the Lord gives him the instruction to take the the rod that he held out over the Red Sea and strike the rock and water would come from the rock now, the end of the story is great because water comes pouring out of the rock, and not a trickle, but rivers of water come out of this rock, enough to provide that it basically builds its own lake for the children of Israel to, to stay there for a long time and, uh, and be nourished by the water, the water source. But the temptation was this. It's, it's a place called Massa. But the temptation was this. The Bible says, and again, this is Exodus 7, 17, if you want to look it up for yourself. It says, this is where the children of Israel murmured and tempted God, saying, is the Lord with us or not? Now, I know you've never been tempted to ask that question. God, are you really with me or not? But God considered that to be a real, real, real bad thing. Bad enough to memorialize it. In other words, if God says he's with you and the Bible says without a doubt he is with you, he never leaves you nor forsakes you. If the Bible says the blessing of Abraham is yours, meaning victory in every respect, then victory in every respect is yours. And God doesn't want you questioning it for a second. And that's part of the instruction. So Moses says, uh, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa." You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee as the Lord has spoken. And when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What mean these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Notice that Moses on behalf of God, is making provision for the teaching of the next generation. That's an, that's an incredibly important issue, folks. To teach your kids. Don't even leave it up to the church to teach your kids. You teach your kids about God. Uh, where are we? Verse 21. Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were, in Pharaoh, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord has brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in and to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. 
And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Folks, anytime you see the phrase, the fear of the Lord, God's talking about his partnership with you. There's a lot of things that the Bible says, particularly in Proverbs, about the blessings of the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom has a long life in one hand and riches and honor in the other hand. All these come down to the fear of the Lord, your partnership with God. We're not talking formula. We're not talking about say this scripture a hundred times and then this will be the blessing. We're talking partnership. We're talking life partners. Chapter 7. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. I love how Moses said, by the way, these guys are all stronger than you. You don't have to act surprised when you find out they are. They are. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Now let me make a statement here, and and I'm sorry to take the time to do this, but it's important with some of the things that are said nowadays. With uh, the the rise of Islam and some of the, the comments that are being made on a public setting, public stage, about Islam, you need to know certain things, and, and don't take my word for it. Read it up. Read up for it. Uh, read up on the subject for yourself. The Quran has m- over 110 scriptures, specific scripture, uh, specific verses that um, uh, that command subjugation, and in most cases, the death of those that don't believe in Islam. Now, some people will say, "Well, but the Bible is full of violence too." It's not that that's what the Koran the, the really means. You've got to take it in context, and you've heard all this stuff. Well, here's the context of the violent scriptures in the Bible. They were for a specific time with specific enemies of Israel in specific battles. There is no mandate in the Bible for continued violence. The, violence, uh, the, the places where God told Israel to destroy their enemies has a historical context. The Koran does not. And never will have. The Quran says this is what you should do with infidels, period. Infidels in the 7th century. Infidels in the 21st century. And that is either make them pay a tax. Subject to Sharia law. Or kill them. There's no equivocation on that. Now whoever wants to argue otherwise can. But that's what the Quran says. Yeah, but you can't say that all Muslims are violent. I'm not saying that all Muslims are violent. I'm sure there are peace-loving Muslims. I'm sure there are Muslims that don't follow the Koran just like there are Christians that don't follow the Bible. But it doesn't change the fact of what the Koran says. Now, all this stuff about, well, ISIS doesn't represent Islam. ISIS represents the Koran. And that's the issue because the Koran is the foundation for Islam. This is not about who's violent and who's not. The Koran says do it and ISIS is doing it. The Bible doesn't have anything that compares to that. So don't stand for the argument that some people are trying to make now. Well, there's violent verses in the Bible too. Nothing other than a historical context. This is talking about the the people of the land, the promised land, to conquer the people of the promised land, period. After that, it doesn't say anything about anybody else being killed or, or destroyed or whatever. Now, here's the reason and here's the context for why God said to do that. Neither shall thou make marriages with them. Verse 3. 
Thy daughter shall not take give unto his son. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images of fire. For thou shalt art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to, to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. I need to make a comment about this. The reason that God said wipe the people out, don't leave any of them there, is because he knew that there's no way that the people would stop serving other gods. He wanted Israel to be free from the pollution of other gods. That's why he said to Israel, don't intermarry with other races. You need to understand this. Where the Bible says be not unequally yoked, you start hooking yourself up with somebody that doesn't serve the same God you do, you'll wind up serving theirs. Now that's true where Christians and non-Christians are concerned. But it's also true with a Christian that's sold out to the, to the things of God as opposed to a nominal Christian. Brother Hagin used to say it this way. Find somebody with an equal spiritual experience and build a life with them. Why? For this very reason. God's not against other people. It's not that Jesus doesn't love other people just as much as he loves the Jews or, or, or whatever. God's not willing to bless them. It's that God's not willing to share his worship, worship from his people with other gods. And if you leave people that already are worshiping other gods in the place that they're at, you're going to start being affected by them rather than them being lifted up by you. It's a great lesson to learn, folks. I've seen a lot of Christians think that they're going to walk into a, an evil situation and lift everybody up to see Jesus and so forth. And it's usually them that gets dragged down because of this principle right here. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeems you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repayeth them that hate him to their face. To destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if thou wilt hearken to these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. And he will love thee, and bless thee, and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb, and the fruit of thy land, thy corn, thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep, and the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Now here's where we usually start reading in chapter 7, because we're talking about the subject of prosperity. But prosperity is just a part of God's partnership with Abraham's people. Jesus fulfilled that. Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For, cursed, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on us. The Gentiles. Believers. Christians. So this is a blessing that belongs to us. But it's a part of God's partnership. Not a standalone subject. 
Verse 14, thou shalt be blessed above all the people, above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Please notice the contrast between the first part of the verse, take away from thee all sickness, and the last part of the verse, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Now what is the contrast? The contrast is very simply this. God is taking action where Israel is concerned to remove sickness. The opposite of that is no action to remove sickness. Now please notice again, God's action for, toward Israel is to take away sickness. Why is he having to take away sickness? Because sickness is in the world. And sickness is going to attack the people of God just like it attacks people that don't know God. The difference is, the blessing of God is, he will remove through action on his part. The blessing of God, he will remove that sickness from his people. He doesn't remove it from the earth. He doesn't remove it from the unsaved. He takes no action toward them because they're outside of his covenant blessing. So here where it says he'll lay them upon them, God's not the one taking action to bring sickness upon his enemies. It's the sicknesses in the world. Sickness is going to affect everybody some way or another. The question is, is God going to work on your behalf to remove it? Do you see? Some people will take verses like this and say, well, see, it says God putting sickness on people. No, it's not. It's not what it says. And maybe the way it's translated, but that's not what the original text says. Verse 16, thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. Thine eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods. Notice the reason why he tells them not to show mercy or pity upon their enemies. Because you don't want anything to do with their gods. Neither shalt thou serve their gods, for they will be a snare unto thee. If thou say in my heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shall well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. The great temptations which thine eyes saw, and the signs, and the wonders, and the mighty hand, and the stretched out arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them until they that are left, uh, until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God among you is among you a mighty God and terrible. And the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you to take the whole of the promised land at one time. God could have caused or, or allowed a plague to come through the whole of the promised land and everybody die instantly. But he said, I don't want it to, do, to happen that way because it would be more than you could take possession of at one time. Then the beasts of the field would overrun the thing and you'd have a real problem. So God has a purpose a lot of times in things not working as fast as we think they should. Verse 23, but the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings into thine hand and thou shalt destroy thine, their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. The graven images of their God shall you burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them. 
nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. Chapter 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shalt thou observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart and whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. This is what Jesus quoted when the devil tempted him to turn the stones into bread in in, uh, Matthew 4. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth, or instructs, literally instructs his son, so the Lord thy God instructs thee. Thou, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Here's where we usually start reading in chapter 8. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness and thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God... And not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full. And hast built goodly houses and dwell therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply. And thy silver and thy gold is multiplied. And all that thou hast is multiplied. Notice he says this is going to happen. Then thine heart be lifted up. And thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage. Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness. Wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions in drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good in thy latter end. Folks, I recommend that you underline this verse of scripture. Let me read it to you again. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Nobody wants day-to-day provision. They didn't. We don't. We want a pile of money so we can figure out tomorrow for ourselves. We want abundant provision so that we can make plans. But notice that there's a time. It won't always be this way. But there's a time in everybody's life where God will take you day to day to prove you. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not, that he might humble thee. And that he might prove thee to this end. Here's why God does this. To do thee good at thy latter end. In other words, to make things better for you in the future. A lot of people want to skip over this part. I don't want day-to-day manna. I've told you the story of the building and the problems we had with the, the building and the lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. It occurred to me that whereas I'd been believing for the walls of Jericho to fall down and for everything to just go smooth sailing, that God led us for five years, day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, 
We didn't know at the end of the, uh, at the beginning of each day if we we're going to have enough to make it through the day. But God saw us through every day for five solid years. The, uh, I always liken it to the scene in It's a Wonderful Life where Jimmy Stewart's, you know, there's a run on the, the bank and the building alone is uh, crowded with people and everybody's coming to get money out of the bank or out of the building and loan. And Jimmy Stewart ends the scene, ends the day with $2 bills and one in each hand. And, and uh, the clock strikes five. And he says, well, they may close this someday, but not today. That's what it was for us for five years. And I didn't want it. I hated every day of it. But boy, I can sure see the benefit of it now. And looking back at it, I, of course, I'm not in, under the pressure or the pain of it anymore. But those were good days because those were days where God was talking to me about stuff. Those were days where I had to, I had to, I had to seek God about buying paper clips. I mean, it was that close. Now we need something, we just go get it. It's better for us now. We're in a better financial position now. But boy, we learned some wonderful, wonderful wonderful lessons life changing lessons during those days let me read it again verse 16 who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end I love that to do thee good at thy latter end and thou shalt say in thine heart my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth He's talking about back to verse 14 when your heart's lifted up and forget the Lord. And thou shalt say in thine heart my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Folks you need to understand something. The power to get wealth is not some big mystery. It's the blessing of God that is accessed by faith in his word. That is the power to get wealth. The blessing of the Lord maketh rich. How do you access the blessing of God? By faith in his word. And it shall be if thou do it all forget the Lord thy God. And walk after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. He's talking partnership. You break the partnership. Don't expect the blessings to continue. As much good as God does for you by keeping and walking in the partnership. You can expect the enemy to do just that much bad against you, to destroy you. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall you perish because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Now after reading chapters 6, 7, and 8, let me ask you a question. What's the, the, the main thing that you come away with? Do you come away with, well, God's going to do this for me financially. God's going to do that for me financially. It was all there. We read it. We stopped and paid some attention to it. But that's not, the, that's not the context that we come from. What we come away with is how important it is to keep the word of God because God's partnership is based upon his word. And if there's, there's only one lesson you learn about biblical prosperity, let it be that one. Provision is a result of a partnership with God. It's not an event. Prosperity is not an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a partnership. Let me close with this final passage of Scripture. Psalm 115. 
I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord. Well, that's us, isn't it? He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Why? Because you fear him. Remember what I told you, the phrase, the fear of the Lord is all about partnership. Here's God's plan for you to be his partner. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth has he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The blessing of Abraham is that we get to be God's partner too. The blessing of Abraham is identified specifically. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is three things. Spiritual death. Poverty and sickness. Those are the three things specifically that we are redeemed from. But the blessing of God is so much more than the sum of those three things. We get to be God's partners in life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the covenant that you made with Abraham and that you enabled us to partake of it through Jesus and his finished work on the cross. We thank you, Father. That because we are those that fear you, we are those that keep your word, we thank you that you do increase us more and more, us and our children. We know, Father, that there are people in, in dire situations in this room and under the sound of my voice. <coughs> and I thank you, Father, that you are the deliverer. I thank you that you do whatever supernatural work, maybe even miraculous work that's necessary to provide for them and to help them. To bring them out of the pit that they may be in. But Father I thank you more than that. That you revealed the partnership with them. Your blessing upon them in life. To prosper whatever we put our hand to. To increase us as we follow you. And walk in obedience to your word. Thank you Father that the blessing of the Lord. Does make us rich. And you add no sorrow to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.